This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> We're not beginning the show with chewing sounds because chewing freaks Eric out. I Eric, explain, please. I can't stand to hear the sound of somebody chewing in like a movie or on the radio or something. I just it, I just can't stand it. So it those women me... who eat icy cold dill pickles I've into microphones on YouTube? For... I would despise yeah. that. I just, it would make me just... Turn it off is right. what it would make me of do. Of course. And I was telling Christopher, the reason we were laughing when we started was I was just telling Christopher and Brandon that they used to, on Matlock, remember that old Andy Griffith television show where he was playing that Atlanta lawyer mm -hmm. um, with Linda Pearl? Um, and I think Stephanie Powers, maybe. Focus. Sorry. Um, <laughs> they would show him at the courthouse. He would go by the hot dog stand and get a hot dog, and he would eat the hot dog. <laughs> While he was doing dialogue on the show, and I would just lose my shit. <laughs> Put down that fucking hot dog I'm and saying finish your, your sentence first. Finish your sentence before I you eat the hot dog. I do not want to listen to you eat that hot dog. That's <laughs> just horrifying. I think it's weird that we eat facing each other. Mm -hmm. Like, it would be the same. To me, it's the same as if you put a circle of toilets facing one another. <laughs> Because it's just the other end of the same process. I just think that's weird. <laughs> that's just ridiculous, Eric. That's not the same thing. It's the only the other end of the same process. <laughs> it doesn't involve defecating. I just think it's a little odd. And so I have very sort of like, okay, like yeah. it's very sociable and I like eating dinner with people and whatever. But it's a little odd to me. And... Well, I, we, we I eat weird, so I would be in favor of that. Like, I, I, I'm like, let's get the eating done before we do all this talking and socializing because food is here. I don't want to pause and chew and swallow and then add to my point. Yeah, it's like watching somebody waiting to uh, the choke, for the choking incident. <laughs> Christopher is a primary Heimlich maneuver candidate. Like, I have been watching him no, eat in no. terror for you, years. You get over that. You chew your food 22 times. That's what Lauren Cobb told me in high school. Everyone should chew their food 22 times. And look at where Lauren Cobb is today. <laughs> She's fine, I think. She didn't joke. She hasn't joked you, you on anything. You don't know that. I checked in with her recently. I think she's okay. She's divorced, but she didn't choke. Um, anyway... <laughs> Anyway, enough of all this tomfoolery and nonsense and chit-chat and back and forth. I'm sorry, guys. We enjoyed it as long yeah, as we, we could. Did. We're going to now just read things aloud like everybody on YouTube does. Have you just – that's what I figured out YouTube is. YouTube is all people reading Wikipedia entries 
while they show stock photography of the subjects they're talking You're about. You're not watching the same videos I am. You're watching <laughs> wrestling. You're watching Greek wrestling on YouTube is what you're watching. Well, that's one of the things. And yeah, nobody's saying anything. <laughs> Mouths are too full. I don't know what those coaches are saying to those. Oh, you know what we didn't talk about? What? This didn't is really, about? really important in the horny old men category. Um, we talked about our trip trick to trip to Europe. Excuse me, a trick to Europe. Wow, <laughs> you had a different vi- trip at the, what? What? Okay, we saw a rugby game on television cool. for the first time. We were trapped in the. We, we don't tell that part of the story. We stole somebody's luggage. <laughs> we didn't steal anybody's <laughs> luggage. Don't tell that part of the story. We accidentally wound up with somebody else's yeah, and luggage. So we were we were in this airport lounge and we were there was a rugby game playing on British television. And Eric's first response was, well, God, this is a terrible game. It's fucked up all of their teeth. Look at how horrible their teeth look. And then it took him a minute to realize they were all wearing tooth guards or mouth guards or whatever. I thought they all had, like, denture-level teeth. (laughs) It was like, oh, it's a mouth guard. Our entire team's teeth have been replaced. That's how aggressively we pray. Um, But it was like watching gay sex is what it was like watching. It was like, I want the Ted Lasso show about rugby, but with no women. Yeah, that's I'm sure Hannah Waddington would be <laughs> all about that. Anyway, I can't remember where I was going with that except rugby is hot. I don't know. It was really like I thought, wow, what are we going to do? This was his trick to Europe. Right, um, but we didn't talk about how impacted we were by this rugby game. And and I'm going to be into rugby now. I'm going to try to figure out how to watch we it. We didn't talk about how Christopher wouldn't let me change the channel to watch <laughs> Midsummer Murders so that he could if watch you, men in if, short pants. Listen, I'm getting trolled because of your Midsummer's Murders bullshit, okay? I went to leave... Um, a supportive comment on the Facebook page of Anne Cleves, who is one of the most esteemed mystery I writers in the United Anne Kingdom. Cleaves. And there, beneath my comment on her thread, somebody was saying, oh, here you are supporting Anne Cleves, but you hate Midsummer Murders. And I'm like, first of all, Anne Cleves up here, I'm indicating in the sky stratosphere, Midsummer Murders down here. That's like accusing and somebody. There's the beginning of yeah. your problem. No, it isn't a problem. It is a distinction. It is discernment. <laughs> it is taste. Sometimes I exercise taste. Anne Cleves is a titan. She is a talent. Shetland is a wonderful show. Midsummer Murders is not a wonderful show. Well, that just depends on how you define wonderful. Okay, how do you define wonderful? Well, it's a lovely British countryside village murder mystery um, every week featuring a series of detectives that are fun and interesting to watch and highly have fun and idiosyncratic personalities. It is the most gruesome, bloodiest village you will ever find. Gazebos are being exploded, purses are killing people, dogs are attacked. It's like well, that's true of every murder mystery show. Like, Oxford would be the murder capital of the world <laughs> if you judged it by Inspector Lewis, for right? God's sake. Or um, Agatha Raisin brings, you know, complete mayhem to the Cotswolds. All right, or, absolutely. <clears throat> So you can't really – and to be fair, um, Midsummer is a region. Ooh. It isn't a village. Oh, So okay. there's Badger's Drift in one episode, and then we move Badger's on to um, Aphon Supermare or somewhere uh-huh. else that's – you know, so it's not always just the same village. So it's actually a region. It's like Vera is a region, not mm. just one particular yes. place. But it's – okay, here's – I'll make a commitment to watch an episode of Midsummer Murders. 
to see. But I remember watching one with you and my mother and just thinking, when is this going to be over? I just can't. Are well, they an hour and a half or are they an they hour? They are. That's uh, another great thing about it is because it's a whole evening of viewing and then you're done. Yes. Because it's one case, but it's an hour and a half. And so you're done. That The, the Perot mysteries mm-hmm. became an hour and a half. The Mixed yeah. Miss Marbles were an hour and a half. Those were... That's a pretty standard sort of British, um, but you get a whole movie, a little movie. Yes, okay. And it's an evening's viewing, and then you're done. You don't need to go find something else to watch for half an hour. But is it a good movie? To Kill Time? And we're back to being judgmental about, like, and there, you know, there's some that are, like, I I enjoy it. I think it's great fun, and... You know, to be perfectly fair, I'm the guy who calls it the middle brow murders. Yes, you know that's what I true. mean? So it is not like I am holding them up as the example of the finest and dramatic and dramatic literature or the greatest performances or why aren't they getting laminated for a BAFTA? None of those <laughs> things are things that I'm saying. Your petition to get Midsummer Murders nominated for BAFTAs. Yeah, that has not happened. No. Okay. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the slot that they fill. Like, no. I love Murder in Paradise, I think it's called, or maybe mm-hmm. it's Death in Paradise. Death we, in Paradise, We yes. did. We did a... a True Crime TV Club about murder and paradise, and I've never been able to keep it straight. But yeah, it's fun and it's lighthearted, and but it's light. Yeah, you know, like Agatha Raisin is preposterous, and I totally enjoy that. And mm-hmm. you know, but it's not on the same order as say Inspector Lewis, which is a higher quality, or Agatha Christie stuff. Right. When yep. that that assassin Sarah mm-hmm. Phelps is not destroying the. Mm-hmm. Um, the the underlying material, right? I think that's her name. I, I hope know. it is. I don't know her name. God, I, I just, have no dog in this fight. Oh my God, she's the one who did those. Where she just well, I'm just going to completely change this story in a way that changes the meaning and yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just she's stopped. I think yeah. she's finally going to stop assassinating um, the works of Agatha Christie. Please never do, adapt anything I love ever again, woman. Mm-hmm. Just. Uh, Okay, okay, okay. We got all that out of our system. British well, mysteries and whatnot and Sarah Phelps. at least Phelps. brought it up. Uh, True Crime TV Club is back today. We got a theme this month. We're extending the theme of our vacation. April showers bring Van Gogh flowers. Mm-hmm. Because one of the visit- sites that we visited on our trip was the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And you have always had a soft spot for Van Gogh. You've had a soft spot for the story of Van Gogh. We watched that Doctor Who episode. Yes. Oh, my right? God. I just wept. And it if is... you haven't seen the episode, the long and short of it is that Van Gogh travels through time with the Doctor to go back and – or to go ahead in time and see the impact of the work uh, – that his work has on the future because he died fairly unrecognized and without any real distinction as an artist and suffering from severe mental problems. Undiagnosed. It seems like he doesn't seem to carry a definitive diagnosis that we would understand today. Um, <laughs> you're chewing. <laughs> you started chewing. You started chewing on your podcast after oh just. My God. Who's the judgmental one oh now? Oh my God, I did it. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was like, why are you suddenly backing away from the microphone? It just occurred to me that the cheese crisps were still sitting there, and I picked one up and started chewing while I was listening to you. And then they thought, oh my God. That's how food works. It's I'm, there, and you want to eat it. Yeah. See, are you going to be less judgmental of me now eating everything on the dinner table in five seconds? No, Mm-mm. not even a little bit. Okay, well, back to your middle brow murders. No, we're not going back there. Van Gogh. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's. 
I think the di- I think what they did for him was they gave him the opportunity to see that he was that that his art was important that he should keep yeah. working that he right. he shouldn't be discouraged. One of the things that um, has become clear in a recent sort of deep dive into Van Gogh is how brief his career yes. actually was. Like, right. but yes, he was somebody who died unappreciated yeah. and um, kind of abruptly and maybe even mysteriously, but that's a different episode. Okay. That's um, a different episode. And we're going to do three episodes about Van Gogh this month. This is the first of three, but all, most of his work was unsold at the time of his death. So it's had a really interesting history afterwards, which is one of the things that, that this particular um, true crime TV club is about is the, the sort of um, massive trade in mm-hmm. fake Van Goghs that has unfolded as a result of the way in which he came into the world. Right. And I think that we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the fact that he's the, he is a god in Japan. He is big in Japan. <laughs> as they say, he's huge in Japan. Well, and he loved the Japanese artwork. Like yes. we saw some of the stuff. We saw some of his sort of Japanese experiments. He was... He was a lot of his career was spent experimenting with different styles, right? And he really didn't come into his own until the last few years. The stuff that we think of as Van Gogh's, and some of it was was based on yeah. trying to capture the quality of Japanese art. So the this is technically an episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club or an installment. The special we're going to be talking about is called The Fake Van Gogh Paintings. It is available on the Real Stories channel on YouTube here in the U.S., which means it's free, I think, or should be, based on your relationship to YouTube. And um, we have visited this channel before, and they host mostly older documentaries. You know, not not like... Black and white, necessarily, although they think I think they have their fair share of those. But this is from the this 90s. Is pretty old, yeah. This is from the... <laughs> oh, God, I was in high school when this was made, and it's pretty old. Okay. So, um... <clears throat> yeah, it's 30 years ago. Let's dive into it. <laughs> let's dive into it, and let's leave the timelines to the historians, Eric. I have some more crackers there, so you back <laughs> off that mic before you point out how much time has passed between stuff. <laughs> I'm going to toss some more crackers in your mouth right now. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher.
So okay. the special so is here called we Van Gogh. The fake <laughs> you were waiting to say that one. The fake Van Gogh paintings at the name of the special. It's on the Real Stories channel on YouTube. So we begin with a declaration that Van Gogh is Japan's favorite artist, and one of his sunflower paintings was lost during the American bombing of Japan in 1945. I assume it was on display at one of their museums or in a private collector's homes. I don't, uh, home. I don't think they actually say. So in March 30th, 1987, an auction was conducted at Christie's in London, and an insurance company based in Japan paid almost three times the previous record price for the picture. We're introduced to Tom Hoving, who is the director or ex-director at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, and he tells us that there were things wrong with this canvas in the eyes of many in the art world. It was muddier than most of Van Gogh's works. It was um, unsigned. Unsigned. It was. It was not. I may be jumping ahead a little bit here, but it was not out of the ordinary for him, meaning Van Gogh, to make copies of his own works. He would do a painting, and then he would paint a copy of that painting. And I'm assuming what that means is, if the painting was of flowers, the original was actually done as a still life with the flowers. And then the second and third paintings were just him reacting to the original canvas and not the flowers. And because so few of his works had been sold at the time of his death, there was no provenance to almost anything. So yeah. at the time that his work began to be known, um, other people created versions of his work and released them into the marketplace at the same time. Not in an effort to be fraudulent, but in a sort of as a copy. And it became unclear which was which over time. And in 1996, there was an auction of an alleged fake Van Gogh that was conducted in Paris, but the bidding didn't go high enough and it wasn't sold. They show footage of Richard Rodriguez, a French lawyer and art connoisseur, I mean, storming I mean, this auction. I love it when people are that passionate about art. Standing he was and upset. pointing and saying, this auction should not be happening. It's in French. I don't actually know what he said, and I don't remember if they subtitled it. But They did not. It was an outburst. And he people... Was- Tried to shoo him out of the room, and he wasn't having it. He would not be shooed. He was unshooed. He was unshooable, <laughs> which is something we admire here at he TDPS. He persisted, by God. So we're introduced to our hostess, Geraldine Norman, who looks like every woman who worked in publishing in the late 80s and early 90s. She just moves like an ocean liner. She's got, I don't know the name for the ponytail that she has. She's just, she will not be deterred from a mission, and she specializes in fakes. So this is a subject that she loves to make documentary specials about, apparently. apparently or at least write articles about. I thought she was a journalist, so. Yeah, I know. She. I don't actually think she works in publishing. I just think she looks like everyone who worked in publishing in this time period. So she tells us there's an estimated 100 fake Van Goghs circulating out there in the world. And she sets up the the stakes by saying the Van Gogh Museum, which we visited in Amsterdam, will not allow in independent scholars to the family documents to try to investigate these alleged fakes. Because as we're going to learn, one of the key... Uh, let's say investigative methods is that Vincent Van Gogh wrote letters to his brother Theo almost every day. And Theo was very close to him and an art dealer and was supporting him. And so if Vincent didn't mention working on a painting in those letters, which he did not of this particular sunflowers that the Japanese bought, um, there's a really good chance the painting is not real. But... I think the interesting thing for me about that tidbit was discovering that 
The collection at that museum that we went to see still belongs to Vincent's family. That's correct. Yeah. I was really taken by that information. Yeah. And the sunflowers there were... Unbelievable. It was... I had no... I did not know that I was going to have... I thought they were going to be beautiful. And I was really interested in seeing the irises and the almond flowers. Um, And... Remind me what the almond flowers They're the, the blue background with the white blossoms and the... Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it, and I wanted to see the sunflowers, but I did not realize. it was He was right. He said, after he painted them, he really loved it, and he said, I am a painter, the painter of sunflowers. Yeah. And he was right. It was the one in that museum there, it's like it had an inner life. Yeah. Like it glowed from the wall. It was just yeah. astonishing. I, I don't know quite how to describe it. It was like it was it was like it had been etched in gold or something. It just had a, it a was vibrance the to it. Choice of background yellow against the yellows he was using for the actual flowers. It was an incredible. And it's only like contrast. three shades of yellow or four. It was a very something limited like that, palette, yeah. they said. And I was it's just astonishing. I I, I knew I would love it, but I did not know how much I was going to love it until I saw it. It was just amazing. So having seen that canvas, I can see what they're saying when they say the canvas that they now refer to as the Yasuda Sunflowers, because that's the name of the Yasuda is part of the name of the insurance company that it's bought now it. something else. It's the Somo or the... I did some. I need. Uh, this was such an older documentary yeah. that I thought we needed to do an update on it, and I did some googling and didn't turn up a lot of information that looked new or current. Because, at, spoiler alert, the Yasuda company is not going to cooperate with this investigation either, because this is their Van Gogh, but and that's where what they, they, they the did story after end. they bought it was they tr- they built the wing, the new wing, to the museum mm-hmm. um, because they were so happy to be part of the family. And what do you know? The people at the museum won't do anything to help them. Um, Sompo, S-O-M-P-O, Holdings is the new. They're the ones who own Yasuda now, but it's the same basic owners. It hasn't really changed hands. The company has. And as we were saying last week, part of the reason we went to Amsterdam was I went there in 1988 with my parents. It was my first trip to Europe as a child. And I thought it was because the museum was opening, but in watching the special... We see the museum opened in the 60s, yeah. but this wing that they built, I think, was what had just opened yeah. in 88 or around that time. Because in 87 is when they sold the the, the, the painting in question, the painting that What's-Her-Name is so yeah. <clears throat> hot to prove is a fake. So What's-Her-Name? Geraldine. Geraldine. I mean, I don't know if I'd say she's hot to prove it's a fake. She just wants all the evidence out there. It really bothers her clearly that the museum will not let anybody in there to do an investigation. Yeah. And they, they're they pretty clear that they won't have participated in that at all at any level with yeah. anyone. That they, they are about their own collection. They're not about proving the provenance. Because there really is no provenance for any of these paintings other than those letters and the documents that they have. Because they haven't changed hands through a bunch of dealers and owners over the years because his career was too short and he didn't sell any paintings. And the the individuals who are putting the doubts out there about the painting are not unself-interested. They're personalities with public profiles. They're art experts. They're, they they have made a career out of calling out what they conceive to or perceive to be yeah. fakes. Antonio D. Robertis is one. They show him putting all his complaints on the internet. Did you see that clip? <laughs> and the clip of the internet is like, it's back when, you know, our friend jokes that dial-up um, porn took like it took <laughs> four days to download one dirty picture. Right? Um, yeah, I would. I would set it to download and go to bed. 
and then get up the next day and there would there would be a single dirty picture. Oh, those were the days. Um, but people were speaking out pretty vociferously about this. Vociferously. Vociferously. All that. Those biscuits you made us earlier. Pardon me. Um, a lot of names that fill the bottom of the screen because they're Dutch, and I don't mean to sound like a boorish American, but Dr. Bogomilia Welsh-Okarov is actually the Canadian who speaks perfect English. She seems to be in favor uh, that it is a Van Gogh, and she thinks the, the naysayers are, are sort of going overboard. In and then it's just a roughed-up canvas that hasn't been yes. treated very well over the years. So the original sunflowers we know were painted in Arles in February of 1888. Vincent had been painting for eight years at that time. As I believe we said earlier, he sent his paintings to his brother Theo in Paris and wrote to him almost daily about his work. And the sunflower I didn't know this, the Sunflowers series were painted to decorate a room in his house where Gauguin, the famous painter, was coming to stay with him it's for a while. It's good for a room with a lot of yellow. <laughs> and so... <laughs> so, Gauguin came to visit him, and that famously did not go well. That visit is what ultimately resulted in Vincent losing an ear under circumstances that are also in dispute today. Yes, you you have a you're pointing a finger. And you have a one of the things that actually is some of people use to give um, in some of the, my readings on this to give validity to this maybe being an actual Van Gogh. The the Yasuda uh, Van Gogh, the Yasuda right. sunflowers, is there is a picture that that Gauguin painted of um, Van Gogh painting sunflowers. Mm. So he painted the ones for the room before he got there. Right. And he was taken with the pictures, and then he painted a picture of Van Gogh painting a painting of sunflowers. And so that would have been in addition to the ones that were already up there. And that's what they're saying this painting is, that this is the painting he was painting when Gauguin was painting him painting the painting. And I, I, the, I, this is, they don't say this, but in response to what you just said, if the, the stay, Gauguin's stay ends terribly, right? Terribly. That means there's a lot. But, I, well, hold on just a second because I want to make the point. That means that he's not going to go – if he's in an asylum for cutting his own ear off, yeah. he's not going to sit down and write a letter to his brother about the new sunflowers he just painted. So the absence of a reference to it in his letters may be explained by the trauma of that whole period in his life. Yeah, and it was that Gauguin left really. Yeah. It wasn't – that was all I was saying. It, it didn't necessarily go bad. He flipped out because Vin, because Gauguin didn't want to stay in Arles. Now, do you know, I saw this. I did a little digging on the internet. This was also not mentioned in the special. There are two art historians out there who are trying to put forward the theory that Gauguin cut off his ear, cut off Van Gogh's ear with a sword, that they got in a drunken fight and they were playing with a sword and Gauguin cut the ear off. Oh, well. Okay. Not addressed here. Not relevant necessarily. I have never heard that before. That seems... Like a story that Gauguin would have taken credit for <laughs> and not covered up. I am Gauguin. I cut off insincere. Yeah, that seems. He has another one. That seems more colorful. That seems like the sort yeah. of story they would have embraced being kind of insane. So right. I don't know. The, I, I, the message I got from a lot of this is there was a lot of drinking going on with Van Gogh and his buddies. There was a lot. A lot of absinthe. A lot of, yeah, oh, absinthe. Absinthe has heroin in it, right? I don't think that it's heroin. Yeah. Well, maybe it has opium in it. I don't know. Isn't the little green fairy in Moulin Rouge, doesn't she come out of an absinthe bottle? Yes. Something. 
So let's talk about Elaine Tarika. He is an art dealer from Paris, and Geraldine, is that her name? Or am I, am I already changed her name? Yes, Geraldine Norman, our hostess. She goes to him for the ultimate breakdown of why he thinks the painting is fake. Now, what did you think of his breakdown? He says... I'm sorry, I'm looking to see if there's... Um, you, I... If there's opium in... Oh, yeah, in absinthe? So it's absinthium. Hmm. Absinthium, maybe. It's wormwood is the the ingredient that I guess is why it gives it the flavor. But it also can cause damage to the nervous system and mental deterioration. So oh. maybe there was a link. I'm just saying maybe, you wound yeah. up drinking um, absinthium, absinthe, and um, winding up in a mental hospital. Seemed like they might have something to do with each other. Convulsions resembling epilepsy have been reported after the ingestion of isolated Thujone, which is the active ingredient in absinthium. My high school yearbook was called Absinthe. Welcome to New Orleans. Yeah, that's yeah. There's the old Absinthe House in mm -hmm. New Orleans, which I've been to. Like, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if they still. I'm not sure if they still serve absinthe or if they do. I don't think it contains it's wormwood illegal. anymore. Yeah. Anyway, so a lot of absinthe going on yeah. up in here. A whole lot of absinthe going on. So let's talk about Elaine. Absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. Let's talk about Elaine Tarika. He's an art dealer from Paris. Let's do. Geraldine goes to him for his breakdown. He thinks the canvas is absolutely a fake. And he delivers a breakdown. What did you think of his breakdown? I don't remember his break. Which one was he? He was about there is a difference in how the leaves are painted. Oh, he was very specific. And the blossom, the flowers. Stems and the yeah. flowers. Yeah. That was really compelling to me. Like, yeah. Those were really structural differences in the way the way the stem looked broken and didn't. It was like it was like somebody had done a copy of the painting and yeah. it wasn't. Um, and it wasn't Van Gogh. It made it seem more like it was a copy. Okay. So you were convinced. I, 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 he was pretty convincing. Yeah. Like that was like, okay, if that's true, I haven't seen them. And I think that's the thing that the people at the Van Gogh Museum say is that we haven't seen it. So yeah, we're not commenting on something we haven't seen. So, um, what happens next is a real sort of, uh, I'm looking for the word for it, uh, smooth encapsulation of the end of Van Gogh's life that glosses over some some mysteries and some doubts. Geraldine sounds very firm in her mental diagnosis, which is that he cuts off his ear as, quote, an attempt at emotional blackmail to try to keep Gauguin from leaving the house that they're living in. Some debate about that. He lands in an asylum in nearby Saint-Rémy. A year later, he moves north to, I couldn't understand what they were saying, so I just put a blank space in the notes, apparently. <laughs> I think I went back. I was intending to go back and fill that in. <laughs> he paints for two more months in blank space place. <laughs> his brother has just gotten married, and he felt he was losing his brother's support. So he goes out into the countryside, and he shoots himself, and he is not successful in his suicidal intentions and he stumbles back to the village and dies two days later in agony his brother is shattered and only survives him by six months which i had never heard before and they're buried side by side so kind of a mess yeah it's the overs and then it goes on from there it's i'm gonna hyphenated. say geraldine was saying it really fast the overs, that she couldn't that she pronounce, couldn't pronounce it. it yeah either. exactly so yeah. the overs 
So this is a hard. This is the tragic end to Van Gogh's life that we know about. I think some of it is, is some of it is up for debate. I think there is there is there is a new uh, belief about the way in which Van Gogh died. He, the the suicide was sort of the. I mean, that wonderful song, the Don McLean song, and when no hope was left in sight on that yeah. stormy, stormy night, you took your life as lovers often do. That has been sort of the traditional romantic telling of the story, but it would appear that somebody else shot him. Really? Like, yeah. There has been new research and evidence, and maybe that's another true crime episode for us well, to I do. Well, I think we're going to get into that with the movie we're watching next week. Like and because I think that there was some embrace from Schnabel of the of yeah. the, the possibility of this new other version of, yeah. of his death. So, But I think she was reporting what is large, what has been sort of presented as gospel for most of... Mm-hmm. Like, I've only started hearing this other story in the last few years. So this sets up what we talked about earlier with the uh, with the provenance of Van Gogh's paintings. So as a result of this, there is a sort of family inheritance that happens, right. and everything flows from there. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So this is what has happened basically with the provenance of Van Gogh's painting. So Van Gogh has died. His brother dies shortly thereafter. Right. His brother has married. Joanna is his wife. Of course, because it's, I guess, 1880-whatever, Joanna doesn't inherit the paintings. Her two-year-old son does, like some, you know, boy king. Right. But she's essentially in charge of them, and she begins... Making Van Gogh, Van Gogh. She made him famous. She begins these strategic sales of the canvases. She transcribes all these letters uh, between him and Vincent. She builds up. It was a woman who basically built the legacy of Van Gogh. And I don't. I had never heard that before. Well, of course not, because it yeah. was about a woman. And so why would we report right. that? Absolutely. Like, oh, well, then it doesn't matter. Just yeah. say Theo did it. And <laughs> she, clearly, even though she he was, was dead. She was doing it at the direction of a very wise man, of who was, course. Who had yeah. been dead for years. Because the men in her life were so stable and yeah. with it. Yeah, like, had it yeah. all going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Yeah. This has been International Women's Month at DDPS. <laughs> Like, I swear to God. Anyway, all right. So it, it really is all her. 
And um, yeah, and I'm glad she's getting some credit, even from if it's just from us. Like, it literally the first time I've ever heard of her in my entire life. She also some famous artist fell in love with her, didn't they? Oh, I don't know. I didn't know about that. Hmm, we'll have to yeah. look into that. Maybe yeah. a future episode. Yeah. So she kept an inventory of the paintings, a handwritten inventory, and the Yasuda canvas is not in there. So it's another strike against the Yasuda canvas. Yeah. Because like, okay, maybe it's not in the letters because of the trauma. Maybe it's. It's a, it was painted after the Gauguin thing that you pointed out as proof that it existed, but why wouldn't it be in Joanna's inventory? Uh, 1901, the Paris exhibition happens. It was a big deal, and that is really where Van Gogh's global reputation begins to take flight. Uh, they do 11 of the 65 canvases that appeared of his in this exhibition are now suspected... <laughs> As being fakes, because by this point he was gaining such a reputation that there w- there was a profit. Motive. This was yeah, it was the thing that yeah. I was talking about earlier. It was just it was suddenly everywhere, and there was nothing, there was no, there was no background. So every they were all coming from nowhere, right? And Joanna was working with a painter named Claude Emile Schaffenecker, who was a minor artist of the day and a friend of Gauguin. And Schaffenecker was helping her restore some of Van Gogh's paintings. And the suspicion now is that Schaffenecker was, in fact, creating some fakes of Van Gogh's paintings. And they talk some about the psychological profile, I'm putting in inverted commas, uh, of of Schaffenecker, that he wasn't very successful, but he was surrounded by successful artists. The Hitler syndrome. Right? And so if I emulate them... I can prove that they don't have anything that's so great or that I'm just as good as right. them. I should have been a famous artist, right. too, and my work is being ignored, and I will prove it by right. painting their works and having them accepted as though they're famous because I'm such a great painter or uh, whatever. I mean, I don't know anything about the guy, and it seems like, wow, we're really slamming this guy without much evidence, but maybe. My my instinct was there was a lot more to the Schaffenecker story that they didn't have time for in this hour of television. I sort of thought the whole hour could have been about Schaffenecker if they had enough there. Maybe they don't, and I'm just giving them too much credit. But I think you're right. I was like, wow, out of nowhere, we're introduced to this guy who's probably responsible for this, and he's being discussed in these grandly dismissive platitudes. They're, they do interview an art historian in the present for this documentary, which is the mid-'90s, who was actually overseeing a retrospective of Schaffenecker's works. And she supports a lot of what they're saying about him being bitter, about his lack of recognition. Yeah, Gauguin had an affair with his wife, and his wife then demanded a divorce, which might have been Schaffenecker's profit motive for making the fakes. He needed money to pay her off. Which yeah, that's... That was, yeah, Gauguin, man. <laughs> Gauguin caused a lot of trouble. Van Gogh's losing an ear, Schaffenegger's losing a wife. That's what I'm saying. I think he would have taken credit for cutting off his ear with yeah. a sword if that had happened. It just, he doesn't seem to have been like, oh, no, I can't have people think bad things about me. It was really too late for all that. Yes, exactly. Um, so we're then shown the promotional videos that Christie's of uh, promotional video I should say that Christie's of London did documenting their confirmation of the authenticity of the Yasuda canvas before it ever went up for auction and I think before any of these doubts were publicly raised because it really sounded like the firestorm was after the auction was conducted um but they in their confirmation of the authenticity of it say oh look the owner was a gentleman named Schaffenecker and his name is written on back on the back, on the back of, the, of canvas. the canvas and it was like, like hmm, hmm. So um, we're given some more information about 
Um, so the 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 ownership of the paintings passed to Theo's son, Joanna, as we said, Theo's widow, really did the lion's share of the work. But that son grew up to make a deal with the Dutch government, as you were saying earlier, that allowed the family to continue to control the paintings, but inside of a museum and facility that the Dutch government ran, which we visited, which right. is the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Um, the Yasuda Corporation, as you also said, came in and built a new wing. So there's like, it's like two buildings connected by an underground tunnel, isn't that? Well, not, that's sort of overstating a tunnel. It, it sort of goes beneath ground and then the the major wing you sort of come up in this building that you I'm sorry that you all are missing the hand gestures that go <laughs> with this doing, description I'm, I, doing, I, I'm ma- expecting I'm him mapping. to take he's going to take flight at any moment I, look you're the one that gave me all that sugar you you made that plate of little bis- tea biscuits you here. were asking for biscuits yeah and baby. I got them I got them you got your biscuits babe so anyway, the museum Don't is be the museum. Me. Take responsibility okay. for your own biscuits. We'll we'll move on from the architecture of the museum because clearly that is landing with my co-host. Well, the only thing that I can really remember was there was a there was a central sort of atrium lobby, yes. and there was a ground floor kind of part of the museum, and then you went up those escalators to the upper part of the museum. Yes, right, and that's and that's and then. There were two more floors of museum on top of that, right. right? Yes. And the main museum was in the second structure that you – well, you basically – you went down an escalator under the ground, and then you came up in the main museum. So I think what was built by the Yasudas was probably those escalators and secondary exhibition space. And also, I mean, museums have – Libraries and archives that you don't, the general public doesn't yeah, access. Yeah, who knows? But this seemed more like galleries. So in 1997, they recruited a new director named John Layton from the National Gallery. And he has tried to be more transparent, but from the way that our host Geraldine says that, not transparent enough for her. And he says, and you stated his position earlier, that the museum is not allowed to discuss the provenance of works of art that belong to other people. And that is a description of the Yasuda canvas. Right. Um, they don't get involved in authentication, which I think is really sensible of them because it could become their primary job. Yeah. Given the the chaotic way in which Van Gogh's work became a part of the public consciousness. Yeah. It is – I think it would be an endless task to verify. Just the Schopenhauer thing is a perfect example. He submitted it to be part of a showing – and it became that became the prominence. Provenance mm-hmm. was that it was part of a showing of the artist's work submitted by somebody. So it wasn't authenticated. What made it authentic was that it was included in the showing. Right. Exactly. Which is pretty spurious, but it is the way in which all of Van Gogh's work became authenticated. Yeah. Was that it was shown. Yes. And that was that was proof of authentication, which is not really so how do you prove that and then it becomes the meticulous well he only mentions four and we only have three and, yeah. have the, and that could become their life's work so i think they're really actually not being dicks about it i think they're being it's a self-defense move because otherwise yeah. it would become their primary function yeah absolutely i you know like i don't think they've ever shown the yasuda canvas in their museum no. I mean, they may got they got a wing out of the company, but they didn't sh- put the canvas. They don't up. show other people's stuff in that yeah. museum. They, right. they there was there was other artists shown in the museum. There was because the collection that Theo and um, Vincent put together was actually pretty remarkable. We saw mm-hmm. some a number of the artists that we left that museum yeah. impressed with 
were people we had never heard of, but there was also Monet's in there. Like, mm-hmm. they had a pretty formidable collection themselves, and because it's the family's possession, those things are included as well. Right. And Isaac Israel is one of the people mm. included in that, who I think is the person that somebody was saying maybe had an affair with with Joe. Anyway, okay. off topic. Well, I think there's a novel about Joanna out there because somebody got around to well, saying, like, this is the most important yes. person in this later story of his In fact, this is legacy. the reason that we yeah. even know who Van Gogh even is. Totally. Well, he was actually respected by his peers. Other artists thought he was remarkable, but he hadn't been around long enough to really have much of a reputation. So then the special takes this turn... I don't know if I should call it a turn, but it's this side trip, and I couldn't quite see how it connected up. They start to talk about an infamous fake painting scandal in Berlin in 1928, the Otto Wacker scandal. And he was this gentleman who was <laughs> his name is Otto Wacker. Um, he went on trial. He went on trial. He never admitted his guilt. They show footage of his trial of famous art historians, all of whom are exactly the same white man with a white mustache, balding with a pipe, who deliver their testimony in what looks like a... And then you unwrap them and they're entirely made out of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, as all Germans in the 20s They're all were. hollow chocolate. Yes, because Germany was gearing up to be really sweet during that time. Um, so this is, I don't know if they're implying that... Okay, so... As a result of the number of fakes, there was an art curator, um, Bart Delafay, I think is how you say his name, um, who made it what at the time they thought was a definitive um, compendium catalog of all of Van Gogh's works. But there were so many fakes introduced, possibly by Otto Wacker, that he then had to do the definitive catalog of the fakes. <laughs> Because it was such a significant and compendious um, event. And that's what I was – that's the thing I think that's been clear right along. The problem with the fake situation with Vincent is the complete absence of provenance even for the accepted works. The the only thing that we have for sure is the family's collection because it's never been anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Whereas everything else is kind of like – He was giving that painting to that innkeeper. These were not documented sales that were happening out of a gallery while he was alive. Right. They were just sort of being hung on walls. There was not enough reputation. There was not enough career for there to be provenance. Right. Like his, the works that are considered significant were produced during a very short period, even of his painting career, Mm -hmm. because there was a long while where he was not even painting in that style, as we saw in the, um, in the museum itself. There were Van Goghs there that were like, Huh, that's a Van Gogh. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, and the then mu- it arrives at the place. Where the Musée like, d'Orsay in Paris is purported to have a fake hanging on its walls. At the, I, I assume it's still there at the time of his uh, yeah. special. Um, there's a private collection out in the Dutch countryside that contains more Van Goghs than the Van Gogh Museum. It included a ton of fakes, which they then took out of the uh, collection. Uh, so, and then we end with... Um, Kind of a discussion of one of his paintings in particular, and I think this is the one that's maybe at the Musée d'Orsay, which is the portrait of Doctor uh, Portrait of Garchet, or portrait yeah, of Doctor. The one Garchet. that sold for the most money in the whole history of. And this is allegedly the doctor who took care of Van Gogh after he stumbled. This is home. where he went. Yeah, this yeah. is where he was staying at the time of his death. 
And so he left a lot of his paintings there when he died, which, which Dr. Garchet took, essentially. So yes. there's some attempt to, you were talking about the provenance issue, to establish that there was a Dr. Garchet collection of actual Van Goghs that he had painted and left in the room. But even that has thrown some doubt on the ownership of some of these paintings because did Dr. Garchet fake them? Did somebody, you know, uh, there were a lot of artists coming through um, the home that he treated, that the doctor treated. Right. So, and the comparison between the one that they're talking about and the one that sold for more money than any painting ever has are were pretty profound. Like, yeah. there was it was like, yeah, that's not yeah. a Van Gogh. Like, you could see how stylistically differently, but he painted in a lot of styles. I the thing with the Garchet thing is that he wasn't painting in different styles then. He had established his style. It yeah. was really clear. The painting that sold for more money than any other painting ever has of Dr. Garchet is clearly in that style. And the other one that they were showing, if it's at the Musée d'Orsay, I don't know, um, was not in that style. Yeah. It was just like, no, that's not it. And may have been painted by the doctor or who knows, but I would have been come down on the side of questionable, if not fake. There are Japanese people who want to be buried next to Van Gogh or close to Van Gogh. That's how revered he is in Japan. They show footage of them coming over to leave offerings at his grave as if he were a deity of some sort, like a religious figure, of whatever your religion is. Um, you said earlier that Van Gogh himself was influenced by Japanese art. Yeah. But the reverence for Van Gogh in Japan was astonishing to me. What and, and the special doesn't really weigh in on why they think that is. I don't know. And I, I, nobody really has offered the explanation other than his reverence for and reference to Japanese art and right. art um, traditions in his own work. Right. Um, other than that, I have no idea, but it did seem extreme. It, it, is it the narrative of Van Gogh? Because that is always, like, Van Gogh's story is always told in a single breath. You know, like, he died in obscurity, killed himself, cut his own ear off, you know, had no idea what his work was going to become. It's the Doctor Who episode we right. were talking about earlier. It and I wonder the if that's thing. the appeal. It's that song, that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, the world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. That sense of the, the artist... Um, trying to exist in the harsh realities of the world is very much Vincent's story, and it is a romantic ideal. It's sort of like the obsession with um, oh, the cask of Amontillado, um, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. um, they'd say a lot of Victorian architecture with the turrets and the whatever was yeah. influenced by young people's adoration for his work. They wanted to be in that yeah. kind of gothic kind of right. haze of, of, and he became, you know, he was, a, both were creditable artists on in their own right. And anyway, but he became revered beyond just the context of his right. work in much the same way that Vincent was, I think, mm -hmm. um, because he he captured a certain artistic ideal, a romantic notion of being an artist yeah, that, absolutely. that people wanted to emulate or participate in. I don't know, maybe Anne, to some degree, has mm -hmm. that same kind of um, puffy-sleeved artist. I was saying, as you were saying that, I was thinking of the gothic costumes and the makeup yeah. and all of that and the mood and the Going vibe. to those, right. going to that, um, the coronation ball with her was mm -hmm. was really, it was very much like going to 
a religious experience yeah. with the deity. It right. was it was kind of it was kind of flipped me out in the moment yeah. because it was so intense and so extreme and people living and dressing as the characters that she created in their real lives, having subsumed themselves entirely into the characters. I think you could make a case for it. It mm-hmm. is it is that kind of reverential appreciation of an artist that I think we see too uh, in in this particular relationship between Vincent and um, the Japanese people and maybe other people as well, but certainly that that's the way it was portrayed here. So, did you finish the special believing that the Yusuda canvas was a fake or authentic? I have to say, I kind of felt like it wasn't mm-hmm. authentic until, you know, by the time we got, like, find, getting the, the piece of information about him painting the picture while Gauguin painted him painting it was the first convincing piece of evidence that I've seen for it not being his best work, not being in great shape, and not being... Because painting a picture to be painted painting a picture is not the same thing as painting a picture. Right. So it it could be by him and not good work by him. Right. Just something where he was putting on painting because he didn't sign it. He was just putting on painting sunflowers, which is what he had mm-hmm. already done prior to Gauguin arriving. He can't have painted a picture of him painting that picture if it was one of the first four. Right. So that it made the first case I'd ever seen for a fifth um, painting, right. a fifth sunflowers, which is which is the thing that they keep coming back to. So that's the first piece of information that I've had. But if it is his work, it is a, an inferior and flawed version and maybe just a put-up job right. of something he was doing for the context of that painting. Um, but yeah, the, at the time of finishing up the special, I really felt like they had bought a fake. So what about you? Um... <clears throat> Why wasn't it in her inventory? That that's the question I would need answered. If she was that exhaustive, if she did Joanna, I mean, did such a good job with everything else, why wasn't that painting in there? I I needed to know more about Schaffenecker to to make a, a judgment. Like there there seemed to be such a story there that he was really integrated into the process of building Van Gogh's legacy. And if he was the profile of the fake, I could have done a whole hour on him. Yeah. And then you would have needed me to you would have asked us to pass judgment on the culpability of this man. Um, and so there wasn't enough in there. Because that seems to be, if yeah. it is a fake, that seems to be the source of the fake. It exactly. is either, to me, the put-up job of him painting a painting to right. be painted, painting, exactly. painting, or it was an out-and-out fake by, or a copy by Schopenhauer, exactly. which I think is also one of the aspects of this story that didn't get addressed as much because the fakes were not about something malicious they weren't trying to it was about copying the master and i'm not convinced by the the early on the alain i forget his name the the french art historian who really believes it's a fake that in if van gogh were copying his own painting he would have made some different choices around stems or whatever maybe just to experiment with with how to do them now that he was not confined to the vase of flowers he was painting well that's what i'm saying right. if it's just if it's just a a technical exercise that the artist was participating in, then it may be just not his best work. Yeah, exactly. That's the best that it could possibly be, and it is probably a copy. Next week, 
I don't know if we're going to call this a true crime movie time. It's not technically a crime movie. Well, it's a pairing. I mean, this is yeah. about looking at one of the things that all of the that both of the the um the the true crime TV club episodes this month have in common is that is Vincent. And so right. understanding his character, which I think is an important part of both stories, mm-hmm. part of the reason that the provenance of all of his paintings is so scattered and uncertain yeah. is because of who he was, because he was pretty scattered and uncertain. So the movie is called At Eternity's Gate. It's probably the newest film about Van Gogh's life. There's a classic kind of a creaky old classic with Kirk Russell called Lust for Life, which I remember watching with my parents when I was a kid. This is a much more contemporary movie, and I think it's going to be much more contemporary in its approach to depicting his life. It is streamable on various platforms. We will be talking about it, though, in such detail. You don't need to watch it in advance if you don't want to. And I'm sure we will have plenty of opinions about it because we always we, Because do. we always have plenty of opinions because that's one of the things you can always rely on us for. Opinions. <laughs> plenty of them. And chewing, apparently. Yeah. This Sorry week. about that. This week. Chewing. It's a one-off. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.